Section 3 of Reincarnation, A Study in Human Evolution by Theophile Pascal. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reincarnation and the Moral Law, Part 2. The Problem of Inequality of Conditions. If suffering in general is the child of necessity, since it is born of multiplicity and the limitations of the infinite, without which the universe could not exist, it would seem that we ought to find it falling upon all beings without distinction, in uniform, regular, and impartial fashion. Instead of this, it is every moment losing its character of impersonality. It respects those who are guilty on a large scale, and without any visible cause, strikes fiercely the most innocent of persons. Noble souls are born in the families of criminals, whilst criminals have fathers of the utmost respectability. We find parasites and brothers hostile to each other. Millionaires die of surfeiting, alongside of paupers dying of hunger. We find giants by the side of dwarfs, the healthy and well-formed near the crippled or those wasted away by terrible diseases. Apollo's contrast with Quasimodo's. Men of genius are met with, cheek by jowl with idiots. Some children are stillborn, others blind or deaf and dumb from birth. Extremely different races of people on the earth, on the one hand, unintelligent and cannibal Negroes, on the other, the proud, handsome, and intelligent, though selfish and cruel, white race. Again, from a moral standpoint, who can explain congenital tendencies to crime, the vicious by birth, the wicked by nature? the persons with uncontrollable passions. Wherefore are thrift and foresight lacking in so many men, who are consequently condemned to lifelong poverty and wretchedness? Why this excess intelligence, used mainly for exploiting of folly? It is useless to multiply examples. One only has to look around at hospitals and prisons, night shelters, palaces and garrets. Everywhere suffering has taken up its abode. Can no reply be given to this terrible charge against divinity? Is man to remain in a state of dejection and discouragement, as though some irreparable catastrophe has befallen him? According to the Church, all this is the work of the soul which God gives at the birth of man. A soul that is good or bad, prudent or foolish, one which damns or saves itself according to its will can, or cannot, dominate its passions, its intelligence discover the way to heaven or not, according as grace or rejection predestine it to heaven or to hell. It is not the depth of profanity to represent God as watching over conceptions in order to create souls so unfairly endowed, most of whom will never hear the gospel message, and consequently cannot be saved, whilst the rest are destined to animate the bodies of savages and cannibals, devoid of moral consciousness. Is it not an act of sacrilege thus to convert God, who is all wisdom and love, into a kind of accomplice of adulterers and lewd persons or the sport of Malthusian insults? Unconscious blasphemers are they who would offer this Dead Sea fruit as the true mana of life. There is also another theory, often advanced in certain quarters, on which we must say a few words, for though it contains only a minimum of truth, and consequently cannot withstand serious examination. 
it has led astray more than one earnest thinker. Inequalities of suffering, it has been said, rise from inequalities of social conditions. Intelligence, morality, will, in fact all human faculties, develop more or less according to their environment. Men are born equal, they become unequal as the result of different environment. Pay the same care and attention to all, and they will remain equal. And if they are equal, the theory seems to imply, evil will disappear from the face of the earth. This is not so. Inequality of suffering does not result from inequality of condition. Many poor tiller of the fields enjoys a degree of peace and happiness that those favored by birth or fortune would envy. Disease visits poor and rich alike. Moral suffering is more especially the appanage of the so-called higher classes, and if obscurity and poverty render certain troubles specially severe, wealth and rank play the same role in afflictions of another kind. There is a dark side to every picture. More than this, inequality of condition is one of the fundamental factors of social equilibrium. Without it, many urgent and even indispensable functions would be neglected, Numerous general needs would remain unsatisfied. So-called menial work, which, in a state of society that is still imperfect and consequently selfish, is performed only in the hope of remuneration, would never be done at all. Every man would have to provide for the whole of his necessities. No one could find time for self-improvement, or for flinging himself entirely into those diverse branches of activity which if personal interest were absent, would make life infinitely better and progress extremely rapid. The partisans of this theory rely on diversity of tastes to fill the diversity of functions that are necessary in social life. Another illusion. The inferior, painful, or difficult tasks will never find sufficient workers, whilst easy or honorable posts will always be overcrowded. To believe the contrary would be to shut one's eyes to the present imperfections of men. It would mean the belief that they were noble and lofty beings, eager for self-sacrifice, demanding only to work for the happiness of all, without a single thought of their personal preferences. It would mean seeing, in present-day humanity, that of the future in which each individual has attained to such a degree of perfection that not a single idle, ill-disposed, or stupid person is to be found amongst them, for each one would regard himself as the brother and helper of all, and the universal standard of life would be, each for all and all for each. How ardently we desire that this were so! How eagerly we pray for that future, so far away, when we shall have grown into this nobler stature, and the present fratricidal struggle shall have given place to a lasting peace! the offspring of a higher, spiritual, universal love. Anxiously do we await it. Like lost travelers, we fix our eyes on the dark horizon to catch the first faint streaks of light, harbingers of the dawn. We greet with joy and gratitude all such as believe in that blessed future and endeavor to hasten its coming, all who impersonally and in sincerity aim at the social unity towards which the heart aspires and especially those whose aim it is to advance in accordance with that continuous, progressive evolution based on the physical, moral, mental, and spiritual amelioration of men. 
for it is they who have learned the secret of nature. Indeed, evolution shows us that, the more souls grow, the nearer they approach that perfection to which progress destines them, and happiness exists only in perfection. To return to other aspects of the subject. Men are born equal, we are told. A single glance at the differences in the moral and intellectual qualities of races and individuals, at the differences between young children, even at the differences in the instincts of infants at the breast, is sufficient to prove the contrary. There are savages in whom no trace whatever of the moral sense can be discovered. Charles Darwin, in one of his works, relates a fact, which Mrs. Besant has quoted in illustration of this. An English missionary reproached a Tasmanian with having killed his wife in order to eat her. In that rudimentary intellect, the reproach aroused an idea quite different from that of a crime. The cannibal thought the missionary imagined that human flesh was of an unpleasant flavor, and so he replied, But she was very good. Is it possible to attribute to the influence of surroundings alone a degree of moral poverty so profound as this? Many a mother has been able to find out that souls are not equal. In other words, that they are of different ages, by the discovery of diametrically opposite qualities and tendencies in two children born under the same conditions, in twins, for instance. Every schoolmaster has noted the same fact in pupils under his charge. Mrs. Besant says that amongst the 80,000 children who came under her inspection in the London schools, she would often find side by side with the gentle, affectionate little beings others who showed criminal tendencies from birth. Looking at the question from another point of view, are we not continually finding in schools and educational establishments pupils who, for no explicable reason, show a disposition for one branch of instruction only? They shine in this, but are dunces in every other subject. As a final example, do not infant prodigies prove that men are not born equal? Young, who discovered the undulatory theory of light, could read with wonderful rapidity at the age of two, whilst at eight he had a thorough knowledge of six languages. Sir W. R. Hamilton began to learn Hebrew when he was three, and knew it perfectly four years later. At the age of thirteen he knew thirteen languages. Goss, of Brunswick, the greatest mathematician in Europe, according to Laplace, solved problems in arithmetic when only three. No, men are not born equal. Nor does environment cause the inequalities we find. It favors or checks the development of qualities, but has no part in their creation. Still, its influence is sufficiently important for us to give it due consideration. We are linked to one another by the closest bonds of solidarity, whether we wish it and are conscious thereof or not. Everything absorbs and throws off, breathes in and breathes out, and this universal exchange, if at times bad, is nonetheless a powerful factor in evolution. The atom of carbon, on entering into combinations of the human body, is endowed with far greater power of combining than the one which has just left the lump of ore. To obtain its new properties, this atom has had to pass through millions of vegetable, animal, and human molecules. 
animals brought into close contact with man develop mentally to a degree that is sometimes incredible by reason of the intellectual food with which our thoughts supply them the man who lives alone is other things being equal weaker physically morally and mentally than he who lives in a large social environment it is for this reason that the mind develops far more rapidly in large centers of life than in the country and what is true of good is unfortunately true also of evil qualities consequently environment has an undeniable influence and it is perfectly true to say that the social conditions under which individuals are born favor or impede the development of their faculties there its influence stops it can intensify inequality but does not create it inequality of condition arises above all else from the continuity of what might be called creation atoms are incessantly being formed in the womb of the virgin mother by the might of the divine vortex perceived by seers in ecstatic vision and which theosophy is named the great breath ceaselessly are these atoms entering into multitudes of organisms ceaselessly as the plan of evolution being worked some ending others beginning the great pilgrimage it is the existence of this circuit which creates and keeps complete the hierarchy of beings brings into existence and perpetuates the known and the unknown kingdoms of nature souls ascend slowly from one kingdom to another whilst the places they leave are filled by newcomers by younger souls the second cause of human inequality is the difference in effort and deed accomplished by the will of human beings who have reached a certain point in evolution as soon as this will is guided by intelligence and the moral sense it hastens or delays individual evolution makes it easy when it acts in harmony with divine law by doing what is called good or disturbs evolution by pain when it opposes this law by doing evil by modifying the direction of the law the soul engenders beneficent or malficient forces which after having played in the universe within the limit of the law has imposed on them return to their starting point man these effects of the will influence to a noticeable degree the life during which they have originated they are preserved in a latent condition after death and appear again in future returns to earth thus are men born laden with the results of their past and in possession of the capacities they have developed in the course of their evolution those whom the difficulties of life have filled with energy in the past return to existence on earth possessed of that might which the world admires now it is perseverance or courage now patient calm or violence which is the stronger according to the aspect of the energy developed others again are born feeble and devoid of energy their former lives have been too easy men are philosophers or mathematicians artists or savants from the very cradle objections have been brought against the doctrine of rebirth by opponents who have looked only on one side of the individual life and so have been unable to explain apparent anomalies especially in those cases where it is seen that the effect does not immediately follow the cause in reality every force that emerges from a center of will describes an ellipse so to speak which travels through a network of other ellipses generated by thousands of other centers of energy 
and is accelerated or retarded in its course according to the direction and nature of the forces with which it is connected it is for this reason that certain actions meet with their reward or their punishment almost immediately then people say it is the finger of god in other cases again and these are the most numerous the reaction is postponed the noble-hearted man who has made sacrifices the whole of his life seems to receive in exchange nothing but misfortune and pain whilst those close by the wicked selfish man prospers and thrives exceedingly thereupon the ignorant say there is no god for there is no justice not so it is impossible to defeat justice though in the interests of evolving beings it may allow the forces around to accelerate or retard its progress nothing is ever lost causes that have not fructified remain potential and like the grain of corn gathered thousands of years ago grow and develop as soon as favorable soil and environment are offered them debts are still recorded when the perishable sheaths of our physical bodies have been cast off they come up for future payment often in the next life but this next life may not wipe off the whole of the liabilities so the process is continued for several successive existences and this has given rise to the saying that the sins of the parents are visited upon the children unto the seventh generation such is the truth souls equal in potentialities whilst dormant as germs in the womb of being become unequal as soon as they are born into existence in the manifested universe for they find predecessors elder souls in front of them inequality is intensified when they have reached the human stage where intelligence and will come into play for henceforth inequality in the actions of individuals variations of what might be called merit and demerit set up a second factor in the inequality of conditions evolution treasures up the causes that have not been able to germinate in one existence and by successive returns to earth realizes the aims and ends of that justice which governs the universe the designs of that love which makes for progress and leads to perfection objection an apparently serious objection to the doctrine of rebirth is constantly being made it is unjust and useless people say to be punished for misdeeds that are forgotten as this objection has reference to moral proofs we must deal with it here does forgetfulness efface faults or destroy their consequences could the assassin who has lost all memory of the crime committed the previous evening change his deed or its results in the slightest degree rebirths are nothing more than the morals of former lives and through the merciful waters of leith have effaced their memory the forces stored up in the soul during the ages perform their work all the same in the future on the other hand injustice would exist and that under very cruel aspect were memory to continue for the painful vision of a past always full of weaknesses even when free from the stain of crime would be a continual one and if too as our opponents would prefer man knew why he was punished i e if he knew that each of these past errors and faults ever present before his eyes would carry with it a particular fruit 
and that strict payment would be exacted at every step in his new life, would not the punishment be far greater than the sin? Would there not rise from every human heart an outcry of blasphemy against a God who, by means of memory, transformed life into an endless torment, destroying all activity or initiative in the anxiety of expectancy, in a word, stifling the present beneath the heavy nightmare of the past? Men, though so unjust and little disposed to pity, have always refused to inflict on a man condemned to death the torture of anticipation. Only at the last moment is he informed of the rejection of his appeal for mercy. Could divine law be less compassionate than human law? Is it not rash for us, in our profound ignorance, to criticize the workings of a boundless wisdom? He who takes only a few steps along the pathway of knowledge, or enters, however slightly, into the secret of the works of God, obtains the proof that providence leaves no part of the cosmos, no being anywhere, deprived of its fatherly care and protection. When, in our blindness, we imagine injustice, a void or an imperfection of any kind, a radiant beam of light shows us the omnipresent life, bestowing love on all its children, without distinction, from the slumbering atom to the glorious planetary spirit, whose consciousness is so vast as to enfold the universe. It is more especially after death that the soul, set free from its illusory sheaths, makes an impartial review of its recent incarnation, attentively following its actions and their consequences, noting its errors and failures, along with their motives and causes. In this school it grows in knowledge and power, and when in a future incarnation the same difficulties present themselves anew, it is better equipped for the struggle. What has been learned is retained within the soul. It knows where formerly it was ignorant, and by the voice of conscience tells the personality what its duty is. This wisdom, sifted from the panorama of a thousand past images, is the best of all memories, for on those numerous occasions when a decision must be arrived at on the spur of the moment, it would not be possible to summon forth from the depths of the past such groups of memories as refer to the decision to be reached, to see the events over again, and deduce therefrom a line of conduct. The lesson must have been learnt and thoroughly assimilated during the enlightened peace and calm of the hereafter, then only is the soul ready to respond without delay, and its command is distinct, its judgment sure, do this, avoid that. When a soul, in the course of evolution, has succeeded in impressing its vibration, its thought, on a brain which has refined and made responsive by training which purifies the entire nature of the man, it is able to transmit to the incarnated consciousness the memory of its past lives. But this memory then ceases to be painful or dangerous, for the soul is not only exhausted the greater part of its karma or suffering, it also possesses the strength necessary to sustain its personality, whenever a foreboding of what we call misfortune comes upon it. In the divine work, everything comes in its own time, and we recognize the perfection of the Creator by the perfect concatenation of all creation. Reincarnation is so intimately bound up with the law of causality and receives from it such powerful support 
that this chapter would be left in a very incomplete form were we not to say a few words on karma the law of causality karma karma is the law of the universe the expression of divine will its seemingly essential attributes are justice and love it neither punishes nor rewards but adjusts things restores disturbed balance and harmony brings back evolving souls to the right path and teaches them law when a man acts against the law he is like a swimmer struggling against the current of a rapid river his strength fails and is borne away so does god bear away in spite of all their efforts those who whether ignorantly or consciously fight against the law for it is his love that wills evolution i e the making human beings divine so he brings them back to the path in spite of themselves every time they wander astray god is patient because he is eternal it has been said the sentence is incomplete and must be changed since it attributes to divinity a vindictive nature the law is patient because it is perfect in wisdom power and love this law is the divine will which moves all things and vibrates everywhere it is the music of the spheres the song of glory and harmony which murmurs in the heart like the rippling of a waterfall the chant of life and joy that eternally triumphs in its never-ending creation of beings who after evolving for a moment in the universe have become perfect its glorious strains resound in the heart of man when the soul has found peace in the law and we are told that when once heard its divine accents continue forever like an ineffable whisper which brings us back to hope and faith when we are sunk in the depths of despair god limited himself in order to become incarnate in the universe he is the soul of the world his will exerted everywhere it finds its reflection in every creature and man a portion of divinity in course of evolution possesses a germ of will that is infinite in its essence and consequently capable of limitless development god respects this will in his creatures and submits to violence in order to teach them his will which is supreme love like a stone that falls into a tranquil lake a human action creates all round concentric ripples which continue to the very shores or limits of the universe then the wave is thrown back upon itself returns to a starting point and the man who began the first movement receives a recoil exactly equivalent to the original impetus reaction is equal to action obstacles on the way may delay its return or break up its energy but the time comes when the fractions return to the center that generates the disturbance which thus receives from the law a perfectly just retribution the principal element in actions is thought every thought is a form in a state of vibration a ray of intelligence which unites itself with subtle matter and forms a being of which this matter is the body and thought the soul this being often called a thought form possesses form duration and strength that bear a strict relation to the energy of the thought that created it if it embodies a soul of hatred it will react on the man who harbors this thought and on all who come into contact with him as a leaven of destruction but if it is guided by love it will be as it were 
the incarnation of some beneficent power. In certain cases this action is expressed visibly and rapidly. For instance, a venomous thought may cause the death of the person against whom it is directed. This is one aspect of the evil eye. Also it may return to its starting point and kill the one who generated it by the recoil. Every mental projection of a criminal nature, however, by no means necessarily reaches the object aimed at. A sorcerer, for instance, could no more injure one who was positive, consciously, and willing good, than he could cause a grain of corn to sprout on a block of granite. Favorable soil is needed to enable the seed of evil to take root in a man's heart. Otherwise the evil recoils with its full force upon the one who sent it forth, and who is an irresistible magnet, for he is its very life center. Thoughts cling to their creator and attract towards this latter those of a similar nature floating around in the invisible world, for they instinctively come to vitalize and invigorate themselves by contact with him. They radiate around him a contagious atmosphere of good or evil, and when they have left him, hover about, at the caprice of the various currents, impelling those they touch towards the goal to which they are making. They even recoil on the visible form of their generator. It is for this reason that physical is closely connected with moral well-being, and most of our diseases are nothing else than the outer expression of the hidden leaven of passion. When the action of this latter is sudden and powerful, diseases may be the immediate consequence thereof. Blinded by materialism, certain doctors seldom acknowledge their real cause and yet instances of hair turning white in a single night are too numerous to be refuted, congestion of the brain brought on by a fit of anger, jaundice and other grave maladies caused by grief and trouble, are to be met with continually. When mental forces which disturb the physical organs meet with obstacles which prevent their immediate outlet, they accumulate, like the electric fluid in a condenser, until an unexpected contact produces a discharge. This condensation often persists for a whole life in a latent condition, and is preserved intact for a future incarnation. This is the cause of original vices, which incorporated in the etheric double, react upon the organic texture of the body. This also explains why each individual possesses an ensemble of pathological predispositions often radically different from those heredity should have bequeathed to him. It is also, to some extent, the key to physiognomy. For every single feature bears either the stamp of our passions or the halo of our virtues. Thought creates lasting bonds between human beings. Love and hatred enchain certain individuals to one another for a whole series of incarnations. Many a victim of the past is to be found again in those unnatural sons who send a thrill of horror through society when it hears of some heinous crime. They have become the torturers of their former oppressors. In other cases, it is love which attracts and unites in renewed affection those who formerly loved one another. They return to earth as brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, husbands, or wives. But if they are the slaves of the past, if fate compels us to recap what we have sown, we yet have the future in our hands. 
for we can tear up the weeds and in their place so useful plants just as by means of physical hygiene we can change within a few years the nature of the constituents that make up our bodies so also by a process of moral hygiene we can purify our passions and then turn their strength in the direction of good according as we will so do we actually become good or bad every man who has taken this evolution in hand notices this rapid transformation of his personality and sees his successive egos rise step by step so to speak throughout the whole of his life speaking generally the first part of life is the expression of the distant past of former lives the second is a mixture of the past and of the energies of the present incarnation the end of life is nothing but a sinking into an ever-deepening rut for those who crystallize in only one direction the force of habit sets up its reign and man finds himself bound by the chains he himself has forged this is the reason an old man does not like the present times he has stopped whilst time has advanced and is now carried along like the floatsam and jetsam of a wreck the very tastes and habits of his contemporaries violently clashing with his beloved past speak not to him of progress or evolution he has brought himself into a state of complete immobility and he will discover no favorable field of action nor will he acquire real energy until he has drunk of the waters of leith in a rest-giving hereafter and a new body supplies his will with an instrument having the obedient suppleness of youth h p blavatsky in the secret doctrine has well described this progressive enmeshing of man in the net he himself is weaving those who believe in karma have to believe in destiny which from birth to death every man is weaving thread by thread around himself as a spider his web and this destiny is guided either by the heavenly voice of the invisible prototype outside of us or by our more intimate astral or inner man who is but too often the evil genius of the embodied entity called man both these lead on the outward man but no one of them must prevail and from the very beginning of the invisible affray the stern and the impeccable law of compensation steps in and takes its course faithfully following the fluctuations of the fight when the last strand is woven the man is seemingly enwrapped in the network of his own doing then he finds himself completely under the empire of his self-made destiny she adds shortly afterwards an occultist or philosopher will not speak of the goodness or cruelty of providence but identifying it with karma nemesis he will teach that nevertheless it guards the good and watches over them in this as in future lives and that it punishes the evil-doer ay even to his seventh rebirth so long and short as the effect of his having thrown into perturbation even the smallest atom in the infinite world of harmony has not been finally readjusted for only the degree of karma an eternal and immutable degree is absolute harmony in the world of matter as it is in the world of spirit it is not therefore karma that rewards or punishes but it is we who reward or punish ourselves according to whether we work with through and along with nature abiding by the laws on which that harmony depends 
or breaking them. Nor would the ways of karma be inscrutable, were men to work in union and harmony instead of disunion and strife. For our ignorance of those ways, which one portion of mankind calls the ways of providence, dark and intricate, while another sees them in the action of blind fatalism and a third simple chance, with neither gods nor devils to guide them, would surely disappear, if we would but attribute all these to their correct cause. We stand bewildered before the mystery of our own making, and the riddle of life that we will not solve, and then accuse the great sphinx of devouring us. But verily, there is not an accident in our lives, not a misshapen day or a misfortune, that could not be traced back to our own doings in this or in another life. On the same subject, Mrs. Sinnett says in The Purpose of Theosophy, Every individual is making karma either good or bad in every action and thought of his daily round, and is at the same time working out in this life the karma brought about by the acts and desires of the last. When we see people afflicted by congenital ailments, it may be safely assumed that these ailments are inevitable results of causes started by the same in a previous birth. It may be argued that, as these afflictions are hereditary, they have nothing to do with past incarnation, but it must be remembered that the ego, the real man, the individuality, has no spiritual origin in the parentage by which it is re-embodied, but is drawn by the affinities, which its previous mode of life attracted round it into the current that carries it, when the time comes for rebirth, to the home best fitted for the development of those tendencies. This doctrine of karma, when properly understood, is well calculated to guide and assist those who realize its truth to a higher and better mode of life. For it must not be forgotten that not only our actions, but our thoughts also, are most assuredly followed by a crowd of circumstances that will influence for good or evil our own future. And what is still more important, the future of many of our fellow creatures, if sins of omission and commission could in any case be only self-regarding, the effects on the sinner's karma would be a matter of minor consequence. The fact that every thought and act through life carries with it, for good or evil, a corresponding influence on the members of the human family renders a strict sense of justice, morality, and unselfishness so necessary to future happiness and progress. A crime once committed... An evil thought sent out from the mind, our past recall, no amount of repentance can wipe out the results on the future. Repentance, if sincere, will deter a man from repeating errors. It cannot save him or others from the effects of those already produced, which will most unerringly overtake him either in this life or in the next rebirth. We will also quote a few lines from E. D. Walker in Reincarnation. Briefly, the doctrine of karma is that we have made ourselves what we are by former actions, and are building our future eternity by present actions. There is no destiny but what we ourselves determine. There is no salvation or condemnation except what we ourselves bring about, because it offers no shelter for culpable actions and necessities a sterling manliness. It is less welcome to weak natures than the easy religious tenets of vicarious atonement, 
intercessions, forgiveness, and deathbed conversions. In the domain of eternal justice, the offense and the punishment are inseparably connected as the same event, because there is no real distinction between the action and its outcome. It is karma, or our old acts, that bring us back to earthly life. The spirit's abode changes according to its karma, and this karma forbids any long continuance in one condition, because it is always changing. So long as action is governed by material and selfish motives, just so long must the effect of that action be manifested in physical rebirths. Only the perfectly selfless man can elude the gravitation of material life. Few have attained this, but it is the goal of mankind. The danger of a too brief explanation of the law of causality consists in the possibility of being imperfectly understood, and consequently of favoring the doctrine of fatalism. Why act at all, the objection will be urged, if everything is foreseen by the law? Why stretch out a hand to the man who falls into the water before our very eyes? Is not the law strong enough to save him, if he is not to die? And if he is, have we any right to interfere? Such reasoning arises from ignorance and egoism. Yes, the law is powerful enough to prevent the man from drowning, and also to prevent the possibility of his being saved by some passers-by, who has been moved to pity by the sight. To doubt this were to doubt the power of God. In the work of evolution, however, God does more than supply man with means of developing his intelligence. In order to enrich his heart, he offers him opportunities of sacrificing himself. Again, the innumerable problems set by duty are far from being solved for us. With difficulty we can distinguish a crime from a noble action. Very often we do wrong, thinking we are doing right, and it not infrequently happens that good results from our evil deeds. This is why God sends us experiences which are to teach us our duty. The soul learns not only during its incarnations, but even more after leaving the body. For life after death is largely spent in examining the consequences of deeds performed during life on earth. Whenever, then, an opportunity for action offers itself, let us follow the impulse of the heart, the cry of duty, and not the sophisms of the lower nature, the selfish ego, the cold brain, which knows neither compassion nor devotion. Do your duty, whatever happens, says the law. I.e., do not allege, as your excuse for being selfish, that God, if he thinks it best, will help your brother in his trouble. Why do you not fling yourself into the fire, with the thought that, if your hour has not yet come, God will prevent the flames from burning you? Does not the man who commits suicide himself push forward the hand of the dial of life, setting it at the fatal hour. The threads of karmic action are so wonderfully interwoven, and God, in order to hasten evolution, makes such marvelous use of human forces, both good and bad, that the first few glances cast at the melee of events are calculated to trouble the mind rather than reveal to it the marvels of adjustment affected by divine wisdom. But no sooner does one succeed in unraveling some of the entanglements of the karmic forces 
and catching a glimpse of the harmony resulting from their surprising cooperation, then the mind is lost in a maze. Then one understands how the murderer is only an instrument whose passions are used by God in carrying out the karmic decree which condemned the victim long before the crime was committed. Then, too, one knows that capital punishment is a legal crime of which divine justice makes use. Yes, a crime for none but God can judge. Every being has a right to live, and does live until God condemns him. But man, by making himself, even ignorantly, the instrument of karma, acts against the universal law, and is preparing for himself that future suffering which results from every attack made on the harmony of the whole. On the other hand, destiny is not an immutable mass of forces will can destroy what it has created that is a question of time or energy and when these are unable within a given period to bring about the total destruction of a barrier belonging to the past none the less does this barrier lessen day by day for the resultant of this system of opposing forces changes its direction every moment and the final shock when it cannot be avoided is always diminished to a greater or less degree in the case of those who have attained to a perfect reading of the past, their knowledge of the hostile forces is complete, and the neutralization of these forces immensely facilitated. They can seek out in this world or the next those they wronged in the past, and thus repair the harm done. They can see the source of those thoughts of hatred that are sent against them, and destroy them by the intervention of love. They can find out the weak points of their personal armor and strengthen them. It is this that in theosophical language is called the burning of karma in the fire of wisdom. Nonetheless, there are two points in the law of causality which appear to favor the idea of fatalism, though in reality they are merely corollaries of karma. According to the first, every force is fatal, in the sense that, if left to itself, it is indestructible. This is not fatality, for the force can be modified by meeting with forces differing in character, and if no such encounter takes place, it finally unites with cosmic law, or else is broken to pieces upon it, according as it moves with evolution or against it. Only in one sense, then, is it fatal. It cannot be destroyed save by an opposing force of the same momentum. For instance, in order to annihilate an obstructive force, created in the past, the soul must expend an amount of energy that is equal and opposite to that force. It meanwhile cannot devote itself to any other work, thus causing, in one sense, a useless production of energy. In other words, evolution will suffer delay, but we must repeat, that is not fatality. Now to the second point. Thought, by repetition, gains ever-increasing energy, and when the forces which thoughts accumulate have become as powerful as those of the will of the ego which created them, a final addition of energy, another thought alone is needed for the will to be overcome, and the heavier scale of the balance to incline. Then the thought is fatally realized in the action. But so long as a dynamic equilibrium has not been reached, the will remains master, although its power is ever diminishing, 
in proportion as the difference in the forces becomes smaller. When equilibrium is reached, the will is neutralized. It becomes powerless, and feels that a fall is only a question of moments, and with a fresh call of energy, the thought is fatally realized on the physical plane. The hour of freedom has gone, and the fatal moment arrived. Like some solution that has reached the saturation point, obedient to the last impulse, this thought crystallizes into an act. Many a criminal thus meets in a single moment the fatality he has created in the course of several incarnations. He no longer sees anything. His reason disappears. In a condition of mental darkness his arm is raised, and impelled by a blind force he strikes automatically. "'What have I done?' he immediately exclaims in horror. "'What demon is this that has taken possession of me?' Then only is the crime perpetrated, without there being time for the will to be consulted, without the voice of consciousness having been invited to speak. The whole fatality of automatism is in the deed, which has been carried through without the man suspecting or being conscious of it. His physical machine has been the blind instrument of the force of evil he has himself slowly accumulated throughout the ages. But let there be no mistake, every time a man who is tempted has time to think, even in fleeting fashion, of the moral value of the impulse which is driving him onward, he has power to resist. And if he yields to this impulse, the entire responsibility of this final lapse is added on to that incurred by past thoughts. Among the victims of these actions that have become fatal are often to be found those who are near the stage of initiation, for before being exposed to the dangers of the bewildering path which bridges the abyss, the abyss which separates the worlds of unity from the illusory and transitory regions of the universe, they are submitted to the most careful tests. There may be even found souls that tread this path, bearing within themselves some old surviving residue which has not yet finally thrown into the physical plane, and must consequently appear for the last time before falling away and disappearing forever. Mankind, incapable of seeing the man, the divine fragment gloriously blossoming forth in these beings, often halts before these dark spots in the vesture of the great soul, these excreta flung off from the center, belonging to the refuse of the vehicle, not to the soul, and in its blindness pretends to see, in its folly to judge, loftily condemning the sins of a brother more evolved than itself. The future will bring men greater wisdom and teach them the greatness of their error. At the conclusion of this important chapter, let's repeat that karma, divine will in action, is love as well as justice, wisdom as well as power, and no one ought to dread it. If at times it uses us roughly and always brings us back to the straight way when folly leads us astray, it is only measuring its strength against our weakness. Its delicate scales balance the load according to our strength, and when in times of great anguish or terrible crises, man is on the point of giving way, it suddenly lifts the weight, leaves the soul a moment's respite, and only when it has recovered breath is the burden replaced. The righteous will of God is always upon us, filling our hearts with its might. His love is ever about us, 
enabling us to grow and expand, even though the suffering he sends, for it is ourselves who have created this suffering. End of section three.